podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. We're beginning a new series tonight on the book of 1 Peter. And uh, I love this. It actually, uh, the plan over the next several months is to go through a few different books of the Bible. Uh, we're thinking of that it'll be Luke next and then after Luke, Acts. Um, but one of the things that's great to do for all of us as a congregation as we're studying through a book of the Bible together, especially a letter, is to take some time, about 25 minutes or so, and sit down and read this letter all the way through in one sitting. Now, First Peter is, you know, five chapters or so. And, and it's good to do that. Why, why all in one sitting? Why do that? What's the big deal with that? Can't I just read a couple of verses here, a couple of verses there, and then we'll sort of pinch what we like and ignore the rest, whatever. Well, here, well, I know, I know, terrible question. It's like leading the witness. Um, the reason for that is because that's what you do with any letter. If you got a letter from someone, you'd sit down and read it all the way through, and then when you were done, you'd go back to the parts of the letter that you didn't quite understand and say, now, wait a second, what did this mean? And what do I, wait a second, let me think more about this, or I want to investigate this word or this phrase or this paragraph. But the, the first thing you'd do is you'd read it all the way through. And that's the same idea because this is a letter. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it. I'll give you a little bit more background in just a moment. Last month, I had the privilege of going back to Malaysia, which is where I'm from. And uh, actually, Greg and Cindy Hansen, old friends, they... Um, Went to the School of Worship, I don't know, three, four years ago, and then have been in Atlanta over the last three years. They just moved back here. But Greg went with me to Malaysia. He was the poor, unsuspecting soul that I dragged on a 26-hour flight on the, all the way to the other side of the world. But he did a great job. He uh, helped lead worship and teach workshops and all of that. And I don't know if you picked up on this, Greg, but, but there's a certain um, concern that Asians have with other Asians once they leave Asia. Uh, and it's normal, particularly in Malaysia, because lots of my friends ended up going to college in Australia or the UK or the US, and it's just sort of normal, that's what a lot of families do, but most of them end up returning. Well, I was sort of the prodigal who, who didn't. And, uh, and so, you know, Malaysians get a little protective about that, and they want to make sure that you've stayed true to your Asian roots, you know. And, and the great test, of course, if you've stayed true to your Asian roots, is how do you eat? And so when I was in Malaysia, there was many occasions where this was tested. Okay, Glenn, we're going to go out to eat after the service. The service gets over at 10 o'clock at night, but don't worry, we're taking you to this place. And the truth is, I loved it. And I was, honestly, about a month before leaving on the trip, I started to realize I was going to get to eat all these foods again. And I started, I'll admit it, I started to get excited about it. So when, when they wanted to take me, whether it was like Malaysian Chinese food or Malaysian Indian food or Malaysian Thai food, I was up for all of it, you know. Uh, and I say the modifier of Malaysian because it sort of takes those, you know, Chinese food, Indian food, and puts its own little slant on it. But never mind about that. Uh, all to say was I ate a lot while I was there, and, and the, the, I almost detected the sense of this, this smirk, this smile uh, of pride from, uh, from the, the people that were hosting us, as if to say, he's still Malaysian, you know? <laughs> now, he may talk like an American, he may, may be married to one, he may be a U.S. citizen, but hey... He's still Malaysian. We can see it in the way he eats. Uh, and, and there is sort of this thing of like, okay, so what happens if you go to an environment that's not like the one you came from? Can you stay true? That sort of a thing is a common theme, particularly to the, the, the Jews. They found themselves in situations of exile um, quite a bit. Now, technically, 
only one long period of exile. And if, you've, you know, if you're a little bit familiar with the Bible, you'll, you'll maybe know that after the great King David, you know, he had a son named Solomon, and after Solomon's rule, Israel, the nation, splits in two, and, and they kind of have their, their time of good kings and bad kings in the northern part and the southern part and all of this. But eventually, Judah gets taken away by the Babylonians, and they go into exile. And so you have the story given to us in the Old Testament of a, of a young man named Daniel. And the, the book of Daniel is all about, here's a person who's staying true to his faith in Yahweh, who's staying true to his Jewish identity, who's staying true to his identity as God's people, even while living in exile. So this theme kind of stuck with the Jews. In fact, even when they returned to, to Jerusalem and rebuilt Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple and all this stuff, there was still this sense within them of, can we stay true to the way we're supposed to live, even when we're surrounded by ungodliness, even when we're surrounded by wickedness. If you're familiar at all, if you have maybe Jewish friends who celebrate Hanukkah and you're familiar with that holiday, and well, what was that about? Well, that was this, this thing where the Syrians invaded and they tried to, to get them to offer these sacrifices in the Jewish temple that would have been profane and, 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 and somebody agreed and then this other guy, Judas Maccabees, says no and starts killing him and there's this big revolt and it's the Maccabean revolt. and What's the point of all that? That a section of God's people was going to stay true to their identity even while surrounded by pressure or by a culture or by a context that was going to make it very difficult for them to do so. So this theme of God's people having to live, as it were, in exile. God's people having to live in a context, in an environment that was not favorable to them. This is a recurring theme, not only in the Old Testament, but certainly by the time we get to the New Testament. Now, for the first Christians, this sort of experience continued. Not only were they kind of marginalized because they were Jews, but they were were considered a sect of Jews who believed in Jesus as God. And it was strange. In in fact, we have uh, records of of letters, correspondence between Roman government officials, and they would say, it's kind of strange. They gather before sunrise, and they sing hymns to this man Jesus as if he was a God. Bizarre. And they were sort of, the Christians were kind of this, whoa, who are you? Now this letter, this letter that Peter writes is addressed to regions of Asia Minor and regions of the empire. He tells us to whom. And it's addressed to, to what one commentary called kind of the backwoods of the empire. The parts of the empire that maybe didn't get the, the most attention. You know, this is not Antioch. This is not Ephesus. This is not Corinth. These were some places that were sort of in the, maybe the, the backwoods, if you will. Moreover, this is Peter writing to them. And he's writing to them, uh, to, to churches in those areas, that are comprised mostly of Gentiles. Now, if you, if you care, you might remember that Paul is the one who says, hey, Peter's called to the Jews, but I'm called to the Gentiles. Well, here's Peter mixing things up a little bit, all right? He's writing this letter, and he's writing it to Gentiles. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1. And, oh, and by the way, let me tell you just a little bit more. Uh, of course, we know a good deal about Peter because of the Gospels, and he's obviously one of the 12 disciples and all of that. Um, tradition has it that Peter is martyred, martyred around A.D. 64. So A.D. 64 is, is tr- where tradition sort of holds w- w- the time of his death. 
And when we leave him in the book of Acts and start, the book of Acts kind of talks about Peter for the first several chapters and then starts to focus in on Paul. Well, when we leave the Peter story in the book of Acts, that's about A.D. 50. So there's a span of about 14 or 15 years uh, between that that Peter could have gone to these regions. So the question is, well, did Peter ever visit this area? Well, we don't know for sure. He could have. Uh, what, What made him want to write to these people? Well, we're not exactly sure. Uh, But a lot could have happened, certainly, in those 14 or 15 years in between, okay? Uh, If you're into sort of uh, categories or designations, this would be called a general epistle, meaning a letter that's addressed broadly to a group of churches. It's different than, uh, say, Galatians, addressed to the church in Galatia, or Corinthians, addressed to the church in Corinth. This is a general uh, epistle, um, though many of them were passed around. Okay, here we go. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world. This is the reason why I talk to you so much about the living in exile bit as a setup, because he's talking to them and he's saying, you're strangers in this world. You're like people living in exile. You don't belong here, do you? And they're kind of like, yeah, we don't, you know. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by His blood. Stop for a second. First thing I want to point out is here's Peter just in an opening, referring to all three persons of the Trinity. Here's Father, here's Jesus the Son, here's the Spirit. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school, we talked about the Trinity and, 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 and ways of sort of saying, well, why this matters and why it's uniquely Christian and all of this stuff. And at the end of the discussion, and it is important to look at the creeds and what the creeds say about the Trinity, but here's the thing. The Trinity is, this, is not a concept to be understood. It's this being, this reality, these persons that define and shape our reality. In other words, the way Peter prays it, the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, they're involved. Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in your life and in your salvation. That is good news. Because it means it's not you here trying to do some good tricks here when the spotlight comes in you and impress God up there. And you're, okay, now you've been, you've been saved, sure. But can you do enough tricks to impress this distant God? No, we've got Father, Son, and Spirit all surrounding you every day. You're caught up in this. The second thing I want to point out here, just sort of as a preliminary thing, is he says, and the sprinkling by His blood. Now we kind of brush over this, and we say, oh yeah, sprinkling by His blood, sure, that's like blood of the Lamb, Jesus. And if you've ever tried to say that to someone who's never been at church, they're like, you people are weird. The sprinkling of what blood? When, when is that part of the service? Can I leave before then, or leave right now? You know, whatever, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, Brittany. Uh, whatever, whatever it is, you know. Uh, but, but here's a reference that Peter's making specifically to what Jewish historical event? Anybody know? Passover. Do you remember that great moment? We we know the story of this in the book of Exodus. you remember that great moment where God's people are are living in Egypt and they're getting in trouble, they're being treated like slaves, not getting in trouble like they're doing bad stuff, but they're being misused and they're being abused and God's saying, I'm going to rescue my people from Egypt. And you remember this great night? He says, okay, look, have this meal. This is what you ought to eat on this night. Have this meal. And by the way, as you kill the lamb, sprinkle some of its blood on your doorpost. And so when that happens, death won't come to your house, but instead 
under the cover of this night, you'll get to be redeemed. You'll get to be free. There's so much here to unpack that, we, that it just makes me sad that we can't go fully into this. But just in this, by using this little phrase, the sprinkling of His blood, Peter's calling up all these images and he's saying, look, even though you're Gentiles and this isn't part of your story, because you're in Christ, this now is your story. That look, you're, you're, you're part of this, you're caught up in this, that you are some, the ones that God has rescued and redeemed from slavery. And we go on. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. Here again, he's saying, look, it's God who's our Father. He's the Father of our Lord, sorry, Jesus Christ. And in His great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed. Make a note in your Bible if you're into circling. Circle that word salvation. Is it coming or is it here? According to this verse. It's coming. Who through the, shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is a future thing. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What tense is that? Present. You are receiving this. So wait a second now. We talked this morning in Sunday school at the 11 o'clock Sunday school, adult Sunday school thing about salvation being something that's a past event, but also a future hope, and yet a present work that's going on inside of us, that it encompasses all of this. There's a few phrases we're going to kind of break down, sort of pull out here. Again, it's difficult with a study like this. There's so many things we'd love to pull out, but we'll just, we'll just grab a few phrases and talk about it tonight. Verse 4, And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. It's important for us to know what's coming. It's important for all of us as we live this life to know what's ahead, to know what's coming. I told you that in, in going to Malaysia, we had to um, sit down on a 26-hour flight and, uh, or, or a series of flights, and one of them, the longest one, was just under 15 hours. And honestly, there is this thing of when you get on that plane, you know, and you get, when you leave Los Angeles and you know the next time you're on ground is going to be in Hong Kong roughly 14 and a half hours from now, you just sort of tell yourself, okay, here we go, you know, settle in. And the way that you're able to do that is because you have in your mind what's coming. You know, well, well I know what's coming, we're going to land, <laughs> Uh, we're going to be able to buy a drink. We're going to be able to buy, maybe buy some food if we can translate Cantonese, you know, whatever. We're going to figure this out. And maybe even more in my mind, what's coming beyond that is I know who's going to be at the airport. 
going to be my parents who I haven't seen in over a year. I know what's coming. It's very important as we, as we live out this life to say, well, what is coming? Here, unfortunately, is exactly the place where there's been so much damage done to the Christian imagination. Because we've filled our language with stories, inane stories, many of the times, not all the times, but many of the times, stories about heaven. Oh, so-and-so had this glimpse into heaven, and he saw that we're going to, you know, this, and it's just clouds and harps and fat babies and, you know, whatever. Or even, even if it's not that, it's just escapist. It's, oh, you know, I'll fly away, oh, glory, I'll fly away. No, I can't wait, we're just going to get out of here. We're going to go to glory. And our picture of what's coming is an evacuation plan. But if that's your idea of heaven, which I wouldn't blame you if it is, because I think preachers, teachers, Christians, all of us alike have a, have a, have a role to share in this blame. If that's the picture that you have of what's coming, it's very difficult for that to be connected to the here and now. Because it has no bearing. If you say, well, heaven is my hope, as in one day I'm going to fly away, you'll say, well, what good is that? I'm dealing with a child right now who's sick. I'm dealing right now with a marriage that won't work. What does all this talk about flying on a cloud got to do with the here? And that, that, that has no bearing on it. Or you say to someone who's just lost a loved one in a car accident, you say, oh, well, don't worry, there's always heaven. So is that supposed to undo that? That, that sort of the thought of being in a cloud city, floating, is going to make that pain go away. Can I tell you that that's not Peter's meaning by this? That when he says that there's an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, Peter has a much bigger picture in mind. In fact, it's Peter in Acts 3, 19-21, who says that someone is being kept in heaven. And it's Jesus. In, in, in Acts 3, 19-21, Peter says, Look, pray that God will send His Messiah again to you, who right now is being kept in heaven until the appointed time, for when He comes, He will bring about the restoration of all things. That Jesus, our hope, our hope as Christians is not that we're going to get out of here. Our hope as Christians is that Jesus is coming back to set it all right down here. Our hope is that Messiah will one day bring heaven onto earth, that His kingdom will come and His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not an escapist thing. It's not an evacuation plan. It's a restoration plan. God's view of our future hope is not evacuation. It's restoration. You say, well, Glenn, wait a second. Now, but isn't there heaven right now? If you were to die right now? Yes, that's true. There is a heaven right now. And the way the Bible describes it is that there is a current heaven. And if you died and had faith in Christ, you'd be there right now. Like he says to the man on the cross, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, look, today you'll be with me in paradise. But here we are on earth. There's God's space, which is heaven, and there's our space, which is earth. But one day, heaven and earth will both come through death, will both be renewed. There'll be new heaven and new earth, and they'll be joined together as one. If this sounds unfamiliar, that has more to do with the anemic nature of our teaching than it does, to, for, than it, than it does about it not being in the Bible because it's there. 
Isaiah 65, 17, Yahweh says, Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, John says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and and from heaven came down the temple of God and descended on the earth so that they could say, God now dwells with humanity. In other words, in Eden it began together and the fall fractures this, but there's coming a day when it will all be brought back together again. The end will be like the beginning. Well, that has all kinds of implications. Peter says this in his second letter. In 2 Peter 3, verse 11, he says this, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will, will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. Now here's what's remarkable, is when you have that vision of the future, it actually impacts the here and now. Because if that's your picture of the future, that that one day Jesus will return to make heaven and earth new, and bring it together, join it together as one, and that all of us with new resurrected bodies will reign with Christ on it. You know it says that about us, don't you? You know that it says that we will reign with Him. That I, and I hate that some TV preachers have taken that phrase to translate it as, oh, well, we shall reign with Christ. So I call forth my Lexus. Are you kidding me? That reigning with Christ translates into prosperity here and now? Reigning with Christ is about being the image-bearing rulers on His new heaven and new earth the way Adam and Eve were supposed to be all along. This is about bringing us back to the start in a glorious, new, irreversible way. This is not about an escape or about making this world a playground. That view of the future changes the way you live. Because if you know that we will reign with Christ in new heaven and new earth, that, we're good, that that is our inheritance, that that is what we will one day be raised up to share in, then that changes the way that we live. That's why Jesus says, look, if you are a faithful ruler with what you have now, you'll get to be a ruler over much more. Do you think that was a cute little illustration? Or do you think Jesus was really talking about the kingdom the way it is? Who, he who does is faithful with little will be, give, will be made ruler over much. I say he meant that. I think he really meant that. So that the way that I treat the people in my life and the way I handle the stuff in my world, all of a sudden that becomes the thing that shapes the responsibilities and the things that we get to have. But you know what it also does is it changes your view of hope. For all of you parents in the room, if you've ever had a child that lost a toy, you know, and, and you say, you know, Sophia, you know, and this, I, don't, I can't think of a time that this really happened, but, but let's say, you know, Sophia lost her favorite doll or Nora lost her favorite doll or whatever, and uh, if I were to say, well, don't worry, we'll buy you a new doll, every parent in the room knows what the child's going to say. I don't want a new doll. I want that doll. Most of the way we talk about heaven is as if God says, yeah, I, I really, I didn't see this coming about how earth was going to be so messed up because of sin. And I'm really sorry that as a result of that, there was so much death and disease and, and tragedy. And 
and abuse and injustice. And wow, uh, I, I, I tell you what, I'm making this place called heaven and you guys all get to live there one day. Everything inside you screams, that's not fair. Unless new heaven and new earth is not some brand new place, but it's this place made new. It's this place renewed. It's this place come through death. What happened to Jesus' body when he was raised, resurrected? Peter says this. He says, look, we have a living hope. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, what happened to Jesus Christ? When Jesus was raised from the dead, did God say, well, there's that old crummy body of yours, but here's a new one. Is that what happens? He says, let me take that old crummy body. It's now passed through death and now is a brand new body. But it's that body that's been renewed and glorified and resurrected. Does that make sense? It's this earth, it's this heaven, I believe, that comes through. It's, 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 it's melting and perishing and then springs out somehow again in brand new, splendid glory. And God the Creator in that way is faithful to His covenant with creation. Did you know that God has made a covenant with creation? That He's not about to abandon it? If he was, he should have done it at the flood. Why not wipe it all out? Why keep a family? Why keep animals? Why keep some things so that that same original creation could spring up again? Maybe it's a sign of what the Creator God always intended to do. To find a way to take this creation, push it through death, and make it new creation. That means, somehow, whatever disease or death, or injustice, or hurt, or pain, or abuse. Whatever it is that we've somehow felt in this life, that Jesus the Messiah will bring it through death, out on the other side, to the point that it becomes brand new, that, it almost ma- that in some way it makes everything that is wrong untrue, and everything that is infected clean and new. That is the power of redemption. And Peter's saying all this when he says, look, this is your inheritance. This is what's being kept for you. Know what's coming. Verse 6 through 7, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer all grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in glory, honor in Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ is revealed. You may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. We're going to have to learn to embrace the cross. We know what's coming. It's in a very real way the resurrection of all things. The restoration of all things. There's a resurrection that's coming. But if that's our hope, then what about the now? It does mean then that we have to embrace the crosses here and now. Having a hope of resurrection is helpful when you're willing to embrace the crosses that are here and now. Hardship, trials, they're here to perfect our faith. I like this because we tend to think of faith in our life as a past event. Well, I had faith when I came to Jesus, and when did you come to faith in Christ? And we ask, when, when, when did you come to faith? Well, I came to faith then, you know, and I had faith. It's great. So you know that God, the Holy Spirit, means to perfect that faith 
all throughout our life? Do you know that He means for us that when we stand before the judgment throne and we hear the verdict not guilty, we hear the verdict in the family, and when we hear, He means for that faith to not just be, yeah, you know, one time when you were six, you prayed a prayer, you really believed it then. That He means to make that faith pure and genuine so that when you stand and you hear not guilty, son, daughter, because of your faith in Christ, it can also, he can also show, look what kind of faith it is. It's a genuine one. He's proved it. He's tested it. He's purified it. I think Peter knew a little bit about this, hey? Because Peter was a guy, of course, who denied his faith in Christ. In, in some way, you could, you could sort of say it that way. Hey, do you know this man? No, no, I, no, I don't know this guy. Hey, do you know? I, I think I've seen you with him. No, I've never seen this guy in my life. Come on, you look like one of his followers. I'm telling you, girl, this is, I've never seen this man in my life. That was Peter as a young man. Here's Peter as an older elder in the church saying, look, I can tell you about your faith being tested. I can tell you about going through all kinds of trials. I, I once had Jesus say, get thee behind me, Satan, to me. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you this stuff. But here's Peter saying, look, trust me that when these things happen, it's to prove your faith genuine. Peter also had this remarkable experience with the resurrected Jesus that we heard read in our New Testament reading tonight. We know this story is familiar to us in John's Gospel where Jesus seeks Peter out. Peter's gone back to fishing. You know, maybe he's embarrassed that, he's, that he, you know, kind of his faith didn't pass that test. And maybe that's like us, right? You're embarrassed about the times when your faith didn't pass the test. Like, well, my faith was tested in this moment. Man, sure didn't live like I believed. You know, I want to live. What happened? You know, whatever. You didn't do it then. But Peter had this moment where Jesus came to him and said, Peter, do you agape me? The word there that Jesus uses for love the first two times is this real strong, undying, faithful love. And he says, Peter, do do, do you have faithful love for me? Do you have that agape, selfless, faithful love for me? And you know what Peter replies? He says, Lord, I I phileo you, which means, Jesus, we're friends. Okay? And Jesus says, okay, for friends, then feed my sheep. He says, Peter, one more time, do you have selfless, undying, agape love for me? Peter says, Lord, you know we're friends. You know I consider you my friend. And Jesus then does a remarkable thing. The third time Jesus phrases the question, he uses Peter's word. He says, okay, Peter, you have friendship love for me, right? We're friends. Lord, I already told you that I did. I know. So then go and feed my sheep. You know what I think Jesus is doing with Peter? He's saying, look, your faith went through a test and it failed. But I'm willing to meet you where your faith is right now. I'll meet you where your love is. Peter, I want you to be at the place where you have agape love for me, where you have this undying selfless love. But I, I, I hear you, Peter. You're not there. I understand, Peter, that the best you can do right now is to say, God, you know we're friends. I understand that that's all you got. 
But you know what? Let's start there, Peter. Peter, are we friends? Peter almost stunned by the question. Jesus, I, I told you that twice before. Have you failed in a test of faith? I know I have. Have you had moments where you yeah, I should have believed God, I should have this, I should have trusted, I should have. <sighs> sure. Have we gone through trials and not passed? Sure. Can I tell you that that's not the end? Can I tell you that if you come through that, that Jesus comes to you and says, okay, so you're not the selfless, you know, undying, heroic, divine love. You're not, you're not there. Okay. What do you have? Well, I just got enough faith to just hang on for today. And I just, okay, let's start there. Can we start there? The third thing that Peter says in this letter, you're filled with an inexpressible glorious joy for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's an element that Peter is saying, look, here's where that inexpressible glorious joy comes from. It's not arbitrary. It's not just about sort of saying, well, I, I found joy because I you know, found, discovered an old hobby or I got joy again because I... You know, Peter's saying there's an inexpressible, glorious joy that comes because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Which, by the way, it's common in all kinds of Hebrew writings to use the word souls as a shorthand for whole being. I'm not making this up. This is sort of, it's a shorthand for the whole person. So even when you see this phrase, salvation of your souls, it does not indicate that Peter's all of a sudden become a Gnostic and he doesn't care about bodies, he only cares about souls. No. It's a shorthand way of saying your, your whole person, your whole being. And he's saying, look, there's this joy that's coming. In a way, he's saying, you can taste the future now. We know what's coming. We're embracing the cross of the here and now. But we can taste the future. Taste the future. Why is there inexpressible, glorious joy even while I'm going through trials? Why would Peter say this shortly before he gets martyred? Because he can taste what's coming. Something happened to me on that short flight from Hong Kong to Kuala Lumpur. I, I, I barely slept. You can ask Greg. I mean, I think, Greg, you did pretty good. You slept. I don't think I slept hardly at all. And I was quite delirious. But I found out that this flight from Hong Kong to KL, which is the capital of Malaysia, was only three and a half hours. I, for some reason, thought it was longer than that. And in that last half hour to an hour of the flight from Hong Kong, I started to get really excited. I was going to see my parents. I was going I, I to... I couldn't wait. I, I stayed up. I was exhausted. I, we landed at noon. I stayed up talking to them until 10.30 that night. I could taste the future that was coming. What is it that gives us inexpressible, glorious joy as Christians? Is it because God's, you know, like dropping Lexuses and working deals for us at, work, at business? You know, maybe. I could give you some happiness, I suppose. You know, okay, that's nice. Nothing wrong with that. But the inexpressible, glorious joy comes because you're starting to taste the future. You're saying, oh God, 
Oh, I am not there yet. I'm like Peter who's just denied you. But I see, I see that one day he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it on the day that Christ Jesus appears. Oh, man, I'm not there yet. And I just, whew, I can't even think about me being really a new creation. It doesn't seem like anything's new. I've been following Christ now for a year or two years. I'm still dealing with the same habits. and say, I just don't know that much is changing. And I'm trying, you know, but wait a second. Taste the future. It's coming. It's happening. God's working. God's working. There's something of His presence, of His Spirit. I'm receiving the goal of my faith. I'm receiving it even now in ways beyond what I can see and sense and and, and feel. I'm receiving the goal of my faith even now. As we pray tonight, I wonder if from this letter, from these few verses that we've talked about tonight, if two things can happen inside of our hearts. One, that we say, where are the crosses in your life? What I mean by that is where are the things that are uncomfortable and that push against your pride or your selfishness? Where are those crosses? Because do you know what we tend to do with things that make us uncomfortable? Turn the air conditioning on. Turn the fan on. You know, whatever. I'm hungry. I'm going to get food. We have a way of ending any discomfort in our life. Oh, well, this isn't working. Well, I guess I'll just do this then. Or this, well, maybe I, you know. And we, I wonder, maybe not all the times, but I wonder how many times we sometimes short-circuit God's work in our life because we're running from a cross. And what if the Holy Spirit wants to say to some of us tonight, you know that hardship, that trial that you're going through? I want you to embrace this. This is purifying your faith. This is working in you. This is going to prove your faith genuine. Well, God, I don't know. Just... Would you just please end this already? I don't want to deal with this. And I don't want, could you just, maybe I'll just start looking for another job. Maybe I need to look for another spouse. And maybe I need to, you know, and maybe the Holy Spirit's saying, no, maybe you need to embrace this cross right now. What if? What if God really, really wants to use all the circumstances in our life, whether He causes them or not? What if He wants to use them to prove your faith genuine? Secondly, so where are the crosses? But secondly, where are, what is the sense of hope that you have in your life? How aware are you of it from day to day, you know? How aware am I of it? To wake up in the morning or to go to bed at night and lay your head in the pillow and breathe out a long exhale and say, God, thank you for what's coming. Thank you that what's coming is better than what is. Thank you that you're going to set everything right. Thank you that I have a living hope. Oh, that's so much bigger than the present. Oh, can I remember the hope? Can you embrace the cross? Can you remember your hope? That's what we need to pray about this week with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, can I embrace the cross here in my life? Holy Spirit, can I remember my hope, the living hope, It's mine because of the living Christ. Let's pray.
Our Father, thank You that You've made us Your children. Thank You that we belong to You. Thank You that because of Jesus, we are Your sons and Your daughters. Thank You, Holy Spirit, that You're patient, that You meet us where we're at, but You don't leave us there. You're wanting to prove our faith genuine. For all of us, help me, help us, to pay attention to the crosses in our lives, the times when we can't get our way, when we can't bend something to our will. Help us to say, not my will, but yours be done. Help us to embrace the cross. And help us to remember our hope, our living hope, so much better than what we could have thought. It's in Christ's name that we pray. The church said, Amen.